Welcome to the latest tablet podcast. My name is Ruth Gledtel and I'm the online editor. And with me today is Austin Ivory. Austin has been working with Pope Francis on his first book in English, Let Us Dream. It's also in four other languages, at least. Austin, how on earth did this come about? <laughs> well, Ruth, you may remember that the tablet published an interview back in Easter, which was my uh, interview with Francis about the crisis, the COVID crisis and the kind of world uh, that we would see afterwards. And it was really that interview, plus a whole load of other things that he did over Easter, his homilies, the announcement of a post-COVID commission in the Vatican, and what people were saying to me about how he had been energised by this crisis. I just felt that we need to know more, we need to hear more from him. So I wrote to him in, in rather kind of audaciously in, um, in April, and I said, you know, how about a book? And I said, you know, it would be great if this could reach the kind of people that you know, the Catholic press obviously wouldn't normally reach, in other words, you know, the wider world and humanity. And I said, I think, really think people need to hear from you at this time, but also to understand the process of change that we're being called to, which you've, ex which you, which you've talked about in your article. I think we need to... Anyway, he came back and said, um, yes, uh, let's do it. But he said, I'm going to need a lot of help from you. And I took that to mean that, you know, this was not going to be a simple sit-down interview. It was going to be something much more involved and collaborative. And was it partly because English isn't his first language and he would he needed the help to articulate thoughts in his own inimitable style in in a second language? We, we didn't set out um, explicitly to do a book in English. It was more that um, he, he understood that this would have a primary audience in the in the English speaking world. Um, we, we actually agreed that we would do two texts, in other words, that there would be two uh, original text from which the translations will be taken, uh, English and Spanish. But the first drafts initially were in Spanish, and of course all my interactions with him were always in Spanish. But then there came a point, actually, uh, I think it was as we were going into part two of the book, when he suddenly kind of said to me, look, I think it would be much better for you if you could draft straight in English. And we use the English as the base language. And that was incredibly liberating because um, he was right, of course, you know, what it made it so much easier. Now, it's wrong to say that, you know, in English is the base language and not Spanish, because, of course, Spanish is the language that we were communicating in. So it really is two parallel texts. But I think the important thing about that decision was that, if you like, that my draft, which obviously is all his ideas and everything, but... Yeah, I, I kind of, if something didn't come across right in English, then it wasn't in there, right? And so in that sense, I think that that's what gives it, um, I, I think it's what enables him to sound more naturally English than he ever has. Uh, you've known Pope Francis for a long time, haven't you? Well, it depends what you mean by known. I mean, I, I uh, obviously have been following the papacy from the very beginning. I was fascinated by him. Um, and I wrote a biography of his called The Great Reformer, which came out in 2014. But I hadn't met him before I wrote the biography. Um, and I didn't even really meet him afterwards because, I mean, I heard that he um, he liked it, that he had recommended the biography to people. Um, and But I didn't actually really meet him until, well, properly, I suppose, 2017. I was on a papal flight the only one I've ever been on, actually, uh, to Sweden. And we had a few words exchanged then. And he kind of, I knew he knew who I was, but we didn't actually sit down together uh, and meet face to face, face until 20, June 2018. 
and that was when I was already kind of finishing or working on the on the final drafts of my second book on him, which is called Wounded Shepherd, which came out last year. Um, and then, so we haven't really, and then, and then the, the, the tablet interview was all done by me sending him questions by email and him responding with recorded messages. So I did see him as I recounted my article in the tablet this week, I met him at the end of September, uh, to give him in fact, the, the PDF, uh, draft of the, of, of the book, uh, partly, I didn't go just for that purpose. Um, and that was really the only time, that's the only time we've met this year. So, um, you know, it depends what you mean. People say to me, you know, you, you must know him really well or you have his ear. But I'm not sure that's true. We've worked, we've worked together this year quite a lot. That's true. Um, but you've known about him. Maybe oh, I certainly. said and, that. And, and look, you know, I think, you know, following Francis, uh, reading him, understanding him, knowing his writings, knowing his past, speaking, of course, to dozens of people over these years who know him really well. I mean, it's very strange because, of course, I feel like I know him incredibly well. You know. Yeah. And of course, you, you have a shared interest in Argentina. We do. And, and that's one of the things I think he uh, in fact, he, he called me just um, just last week because he had got the books, both the English and the Spanish editions. And uh, he, and I was I was uh, I was outside um, planting trees, and I arrived rather breathlessly. I said, "Sorry, fellow, have you planted trees?" And he said, "And he said, uh, macanudo, which is which is is a very Argentine word meaning, oh, that's fantastic.' But he, the way he uses Argentine expressions with me is is right, you know, is quite kind of is is rather lovely. I, and when we were together, actually, in I mentioned this in the Tablet article in Rome, he showed me his office and. Um, he had this dictionary on on one of his shelves of Lunfardo, which is a bit like you know Cockney. It's like the the Buenos Aires slang. It's a very rich sort of uh, slang language. Anyway, we we both had a great kind of you know conversation about the importance of Lunfardo. And so, <laughs> yeah, we do have that in common. And is he WYSIWYG? What you see is what you get. Um, yes, and no. I, he, he's he's the most authentic. Um, person I know in the sense and everybody will tell you this about him that he he, he is totally genuine that he he doesn't assume a role um, and in that sense he's a completely authentic person um, on the other hand I think he's always thinking he's always operating at various different levels and I think all great leaders do and one of the ways in which he does this for example is he has I think an enormous capacity to express things quite simply but usually he's only giving away a little bit of the truth, right? In other words, the truth is usually multi-layered. And he's, what you're getting is, if you like, the, the accessible, simple version that he's giving you. And, and one, of the, one of the things I found in, in the course of the book was he's very happy to talk. You know, he's a fantastic communicator and, he's, and he has brilliant ideas, which he loves to develop. But actually, when I asked him about his own suffering in his own experiences he was very reticent and we, we had a bit of a kind of to and fro and I said look you've got to give me more you know uh, 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 because we need to know how God has acted in in the suffering in your life and he apologized in one of his records and said look I'm sorry I'm I'm just not used to talking about myself so he in that sense he's a, I think a very reserved naturally reserved person which I think is in a way, quite typically Jesuit, you know, that there's a part, that there's a sort of contemplative interiority there, which makes it, he's not naturally somebody who wears his emotions uh, and his own experiences on his sleeve. One of the other things I've noticed about him, which I think is quite Jesuitical as well, is the very um, interesting way um, he will sometimes, elliptical way sometimes, he will impart some of his most important or most or, or ideas which carry the most impact 
when people wake up to what he's saying. You know, he might put a life-changing thing for thousands of Catholics into a footnote, for example. And in your in this book that you've done with him, he mentions the poor Uyghurs as one of the persecuted peoples of our time, which is, you know, the first time we think that he has spoken about what's happening in China. And he's, of course, been criticised by some people for his silence over the Chinese persecution of the Uyghurs. Well, of course, the um, Pope gave me that answer about the Uyghur. Uh, he included the name in a list of persecuted peoples that he gave me when I asked him who he was thinking about and praying for at this time. And I remember when I uh, when I heard the recording and I heard him say poor Uyghur, I thought, wow, that's the first time, uh, as far as I you know, know, that he's ever talked about them. And as you say, he's been criticised for, for not uh, for not hauling China over the coals over its human rights record. Now, you know, I think he's he dis, I think he said it because he means it, and I'm sure he budgeted for the reaction. Um, and of course, this became global news the other day, precisely because the Chinese government reacted negatively to it. I think had the Chinese government not reacted, by the way, it wouldn't have been news because I don't think anybody doubts that the Uyghurs are persecuted. So I, I think what he does is, is is that he I think he you know he says what he thinks, but I I think over China and this is you know we didn't talk about it particularly, but I think over China he's trying to build a relationship. The Vatican is trying to build a relationship with Beijing, and when you're building a relationship with somebody, you don't start off by criticizing them, you know. Uh, you build the relationship first, and then, of course, you can use the confidence that you have to put pressure. Um, but I think, so I remember thinking when I, when I heard him say that, I think, okay, in a way, that's a sign of his growing confidence in the relationship with Beijing that he feels free to say that. It's just two words, but boy, you know, look at the impact it's had. So that's how I read it. Yes, and of course, the book as a whole um, is designed to be a commentary or um, uh, a, a work about the crisis, the pandemic that the world is living through at the moment and the post-COVID world. And one very interesting thing he is in it is absolutely scathing about um, the anti-maskers who he calls victims only in their own imagination. And he also um, criticises other Catholics who turned into a cultural battle what was in truth an effort to ensure the protection of life. Um, was, did, was he passionate about this, do you think? Was he comes across as very passionate about it? Yes, I mean, I, I think um, you know, what he's doing in, in part one of the book, which is where that's taken from, is it, it's called A Time to See. And he's looking at the crisis, he's looking at the world and saying, what is it that the crisis is, is showing us? He's doing classically what the, what the Jesuits do. You know, it's a sort of lights and shadows discernment. You know, where are the spirits moving and so on? And I think, you know, he looks at he looks at the reaction to the response to the crisis, to the pandemic. He sees, you know, saintliness, heroism in the people who give their lives, in the people who are helping each other. And then he sees the other thing, which is people recoiling into themselves. Some people try to exploit the situation for financial uh, gain. And you see this kind of vic sense of victimhood that some people have where they're asked to put on a mask and they go, you know, no, it's my freedom. And, and, and indeed, religious people who are trying to appeal to religious freedom. So I think what he's doing is it's a classic sort of let's look around and see what's really going on here. Um, and where, 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 you know, what's what's of the spirit and what is not. That's how I that's how I saw that. And what about the crisis within the church, um, the McCarrick report and the 
ongoing sexual abuse crisis? Well, on, on, what I found interesting about abuse, which obviously comes up in the book, is that is the way he links the, uh, the awakening to abuse in the Me Too movement, in the Black Lives Matter protests following George Floyd, in clerical sex abuse victims, that it's all part of the same thing, which is an awakening of, of, a, of a protest at the... Uh, the, the, the affront to human dignity that abuse represents. So that, that's part of his, you know, where is the spirit moving? But then he immediately kind of goes on to talk about uh, how some people unfortunately exploit this, you know, lawyers who exploit victims. Uh, he's not condemning lawyers in general, but he says, you know, so again, it's always this mix, this mix of the good and the bad together that I think he's, he's identifying. But to me, the important part of that diagnosis is, um, is, is the way he sees abusive behavior exploitative behavior as part of the same mentality that for example leads to the destruction of the rainforest and it's the way he links these things up which i find i think is his genius in a way and that's what i find so scintillating about him and that's why you know he never sounds tired because even when he's talking about things that you know popes have talked about before he, the way he links things together and shows they're part of something bigger uh, is quite fascinating when he became Pope, there was always a sense that it would be a short papacy and maybe he would retire. You know, we'd have two popes in retirement, two, two um, Pope Emeritus's um, and a third Pope um, at St. Peter's. And do you um, get any sense at all that retirement is imminent? I mean, he just seems to be getting more and more energy and going from strength to strength. Well, my take on this has always been that, that he could never retire and would never retire until after burying Benedict. And that is what most people will tell you in the Vatican. Nobody will ever sort of you know, print it, but that's what everybody says. Um, because you just can't have two retired popes. I mean, the canon lawyers, you know, many of them had heart attacks before <laughs> the Pope retiring, you know, too. But also, um, I just think the way he thinks, I think that that's how, you know. So um, he's, in a strange way, the two papacies are interconnected. Uh, and as long as Benedict's there, you know, Francis will carry on. But I think also, and I say this in the in the tablet article, I think there's no question that 2020 was the year in which his seven year plan of reform was due to kind of reach fulfillment. And what I mean by that was that he had planned in his mind the possibility that 2020 might be the year that he would begin at least to, to make himself ready for the possibility of standing down if he you know discerned that that was God's will. But then with COVID, I think what's happened is that it has energized him in a whole new way and given him a whole new mission which is to take the people of god and indeed humanity to the threshold of this new post-covid era and I'm, I'm i'm convinced of this because just of my reading of him my knowledge of him i just from the things that he said uh, at easter in his homilies but also in this book the kind of energy and the intensity with which he's living this crisis uh suggests to me that here is a man with a whole new mission Thank you, Austin. That's really interesting. And I think many, many people will, will read this book and be inspired by the mission of this most extraordinary Pope. Thank you for your time today. Be great to be with you, Ruth. Thanks.